Hi there, and welcome to Open Minds, the show that is dedicated to reducing the stigma around mental illness. I'm Candy McNeil. So today I'm here with Elizabeth Schramm. She's a colleague of mine and a social worker who has uh, been at Homewood and is now in private practice and also does some yoga. I'm going to be talking to her today about all those experiences. Elizabeth, thank you for being willing to let me interview you. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about um, what kind of clients you worked with at Homewood and what kind of clients you work with in your private practice? So at Homewood, I worked in a program called Comprehensive Psychiatric Care. And in that program, we worked with people who um, were probably um, fairly acutely ill and with really complex psychiatric issues, um, sometimes multiple issues going on in their life. Um, and in my practice now, um, I primarily work with people who have depression, anxiety, and past trauma. Um, and I do a little bit of uh, couple work as well, but primarily individual work. And so mm -hmm. who do you find comes to see you for um, your private practice? Is it more you know, older people than younger people, males than females, the other way around? Is there, is there any demographic that you're noticing is more willing to come mm -hmm. to counseling? Um, my impression is probably women um, more so than men, although... I've been a bit surprised at the number of men who are coming, and I, I see a few adolescents, um, but just a, a small number, and that's actually um, quite rewarding. I worked with adolescents early in my career and then moved into working with adults and older adults, so it was interesting going back to working with adolescents again, sure. and um, yeah, so that's been really lovely to see people at all, all um, ends of the spectrum of age. This show is primarily about trying to reduce the stigma around mental illness. And um, I find the same thing as a clinician, that females are generally more willing to come in for treatment than guys are. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's any stigma-based reason for that or, or something that holds men back from seeking counseling even when they need it? I my impression is that, at least with the men that I've seen, that they seem to be much more reluctant to talk with people in their lives about what's going on with them. So if they're struggling, there's more of an attitude of, I need to figure this out myself. Really difficult to admit that there's any sort of struggle going on. Um, and so what I find with some of the men is that I might be the only person that they're talking with about what's going on with them. But I think that not having that experience of talking openly with people in their lives makes it difficult to even attend counseling. And um, so, you know, if I think about some of the gentlemen that I've seen in the last year or so, often there's been somebody in their life who's encouraged them to come. Mm -hmm. So some trusted person who said, I wonder if it would be helpful if you would talk to somebody. Which is part of why it's so important that we reduce the stigma, right? The idea that there would be someone in your life who's not judging and who says, look, I'm worried about you. Or, you know, you really seem like um, like you're having a tough time and it's okay to get help, right? And um, having someone in your life, whether that person struggles or not, but who can encourage you and, and say, it's okay to go talk to somebody and that might be beneficial. Mm -hmm. I think that makes a, a big difference. 
And um, it's also interesting, though, the number of people who will come and say, I haven't told anyone about this. Do you think I should? And, you know, I always leave it up to the individual, but I think it's so helpful when we're working with something difficult to be able to be genuine, at least with some of the people in our life. And so I think a lot of my clients do feel the stigma fairly strongly um, because they are so fearful about talking about it with the people, friends, colleagues, family members. Um, and, and often that's a subject for discussion is how do I, how do I bring this up and how much do I tell people and do, am I being dishonest if I don't, you know, all of those kinds of questions. Along those lines, um, have you ever heard clients say specifically what they're afraid of if they tell their family and friends? Well, I, I think there's a, there's a fear of judgment. There's a fear of letting people down at times that they're not actually who the people in the life, their life think they are. Mm-hmm. Um, that maybe they're not as strong as they give the world the impression that they are. Um, so I think that's really hard. And so many of the people I work with think that there's only a small handful of us who struggle in our lives. And I find that so sad. Um, you know, I'd, I'd love it if if there was a, the possibility that everyone could just be honest about what it is that they're worried about, what they're afraid of, what they're insecure about. Um, and I think that would just change things incredibly. You make a really good point. Um, I think as clinicians, we get to see that all the time, the, the wide range of people who come in for help. And so we know that really anybody from any demographic, any walk of life could struggle with a mental health issue. But you're right. So often the client's like, I'm the only one. I'm the only one who's who's got a problem with this, or there aren't many of us. And this idea that somehow strength or weakness is tied to that. How do you help clients sort that out? Well, I think um, we, I, I try to look at the whole person, that we can be incredibly competent in so many areas of our life and still be terrified, still be um, somebody who worries and feels insecure and um, gets scared by all kinds of things, but but that there's also a lot of strength and that we can be all of those things at once and that being fearful or insecure doesn't mean we're not competent. Um, so I've, I've actually started really working with the notion of self-compassion quite a bit in my work. And so I think one of the things I've noticed is that when we focus a lot on self-esteem, that it still seems to be about getting somewhere or accomplishing things that we can feel really good about, as opposed to being compassionate with ourselves, whether we do really well at something or not. And and that if we can be compassionate with ourselves, we can actually deal with all of those difficulties. We can ac- accept the fear, we can accept the, the things we might perceive as failures, and, um, and, and work with it and move beyond it. I feel like I'm seeing a lot more people who struggle with uh, perfectionism in their lives. And um, 
I guess I'm reminded of that because when you're talking about compassion, it is partly about understanding and accepting that it's okay for me to have flaws. It's okay for me to have weakness. And that doesn't take away from my overall value or worth, right? And um, I'm more than just my accomplishments. I'm more than just the grades I get or the promotion I get or um, how thin I am, like those kinds of things. Are you seeing perfectionism as being part of the problem when someone struggles, let's say, with anxiety or depression? Absolutely. I, th I think we're in, we live in a culture that's very focused on um, achievement and, you know, so much in the media is about our, our home looking a particular way, ourselves looking a particular way, and, and also about accomplishment. And, um, you know, one of the things that I really hear is people comparing themselves to other people. Right. And so we can easily, in the course of one day, feel inferior, equal, and superior to somebody else. And, you know, I think any of that comparison is is so difficult for us. So that even at times when we feel like, oh, I've really done well, I've really accomplished something, we know that that's not a, a state that we're always going to be in and that another day we're going to feel less than somebody else. Um, yeah, so we, I, I try to really pay attention to that, um, that comparison to other people, comparison to ourselves even. You know, I used to be able to do something or I should be able to do something. Right. Um, that's really well put. And, and along those lines of comparison, um, one thing that I... I think is a struggle as well, is people feeling like, well, I don't know when I deserve, in quotes, treatment, right? When am I sick enough to warrant this? And that's also partly about comparison. Someone will say, well, I must not struggle with depression because I can get up and go to my job every day, right? Or um, this can't be, you know, a true anxiety disorder because I finished all my courses this semester. Um, and that's partly about comparing to what other people are doing. How do you help someone determine Determine whether or not um, they are "quote unquote" sick enough to warrant treatment of whatever kind—therapy, medication, inpatient, outpatient—any of that stuff. Um, yeah, that that is actually something that comes up quite a bit. That wondering, you know, do I deserve to do this? Um, and I think I try to come at it from the standpoint of if there's something that you're struggling with, however big or small and it's troubling you, then it's worth dealing with. Um, and, and, you know, I find some people will come for just one, two, or three sessions to, to work with some thing that might be perceived as being smaller that they just need to sort out. That, you know, having the benefit of somebody who's objective, who doesn't have a, um, a stake in how, how they decide how to handle the situation just makes a bit of a difference. I think that's um, one of the fears that I've heard people voice sometimes, that if they go to therapy, it's going to be this very lengthy or process, right? That you're uh, going once a week, every week for four years. And certainly that is the case for some people who um, may have things that they're struggling with. You talked about helping people who have past trauma, and that may not be something that gets better in a single session or two. But you're also saying that um, it's really okay just to go and talk with someone even for a brief period about something that is interfering less with their life 
than something major. Is that right? Yes. I mean, I think there's there's not one formula. And, um, you know, people often, I think if they, in particular, if they've never come to therapy, they sort of look for some guidance from me about, well, what am I supposed to do? How do I start? And, you know, I just encourage them to start wherever they are and that there isn't one formula, that therapy is different each time a new person arrives in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's no there's no cookie-cutter approach to this that works. It really is very individual. And whatever we're struggling with is, is worth talking about. Sure. You not only help people by uh, talking about it, you also um, do yoga and yoga instruction and mindfulness is a part of your practice. And um, before the interview, I was joking that there are some stigmas around that too, right? The granola-eating tree hugger who loves yoga, right? And so um, sometimes when I'm encouraging clients to give a yoga class a, a try, there's this, you know, I'm not that kind of person, as if there is a kind of person who benefits from yoga. Can you tell us a little bit about what got you interested in yoga and mindfulness and how you incorporate that in helping people with mental health issues? Mm-hmm. Um, so I started doing yoga about um, 16 years ago and meditation about five or six years ago and really noticed um, the incredible benefits for myself. So what I love about the the style of yoga that I practice is that it's really about self-acceptance and landing in your own body and your own experience um, each day in whatever way that happens for you. And I don't know if that makes sense, but it's, yeah. it's really their practices about coming back to your own body, your own breath, and um, and coming out of um, your head in the sense of judging what's happening. So there's that quality of self, self-acceptance, non-competition that I think is so valuable. And, and I realized that I was starting to encourage some of my clients to consider um, exploring yoga or meditation. And so I often bring in some really simple elements of the practices as self-care strategies. Um, and I completed yoga teacher training just over a year ago, and so I've been teaching as well. And um, I've done some workshops specifically for yoga with anxiety and depression. Um, so the idea of using those practices to deal with those issues is that we can come into our body, and so when the mind is troubled, we have something to do. We can focus on the sensations in the body that arise um, as a result of anxiety, depression, even past trauma. Um, so it can, it can bring some comfort and ease to the things that are troubling us. And also to start to feel a sense of ownership of our own body, um, which I think can be really powerful. Mm-hmm. And so have your clients um, said that they they find that a useful addition to the talk therapy, or is it something they end up doing instead of talk therapy? How does that work? Um, I would say most of the clients that I've introduced some of the strategies to um, have an interest and try them. Some people are not interested, and that's fine. Um, and then uh, another handful of my clients have, have started to go to yoga classes or to practice meditation. Um, and I think there's, 
I think there's a lot of benefit to the practices of yoga and meditation, but there are also times when we need to talk about the story. Um, and I think it's important to, to begin to develop that self-awareness to know when can I look after this myself and when can these practices or other things I'm doing for myself in my life, when are they helpful enough and when do I need to maybe talk a bit more about what's going on. So I see the two working um, quite well together. I often think about how we don't feel at all embarrassed about going to see the dentist when we have tooth pain. Not only that, we also don't feel uh, uncomfortable going to the dentist just for a regular checkup or for a tooth cleaning, right? And my hope is that someday going to see a counselor will be just as easy for someone as going in to see a dentist and that it really will be about that thing. There are some things you can do for yourself like brushing and flossing and rinsing with water and things like that, but there are other things where you really need the dentist with his expertise to help you with that. And that's not a sign that you were brushing wrong or flossing wrong or in some way um, too weak to take care of your teeth by yourself, but that there really is this partnership and this balance between self-care, which really can be done independently, and care where you do let other people help you, sometimes friends and family who just provide a really good supportive ear, and other times a professional who does have some objectivity and, as you say, isn't invested in the outcome, but can just really help you sort out your own space. And it sounds like that's a little bit of what you're talking about, that there can be some things um, that people do on their own and I love that idea that you could teach someone um, some some breath exercises or some um, yoga poses that they could then do, you know, when they're feeling anxious before an exam, when they're having trouble sleeping, um, but also that there are things that they can come back and talk about as well. I loved your um, comparison to going to the dentist, and I think I actually use a, a, a similar example with people that attending to our emotional well-being is as important every day as brushing our teeth and getting a good night's sleep and good nutrition. That, And I think we minimize that at times. Um, and that we do need support in that in the same way that we do with, with our dental hygiene, right? Sure. That, that sometimes we do need somebody to just help us to negotiate whatever um, confusing time we've arrived at in our life or difficult time. Do you have a personal theory on why we treat them differently, why we don't give anybody a hard time about going to the dentist, but we do um, have some reluctance about taking care of our emotional health, as you call it, on a daily basis, and, and why that's a lower priority, why some people recognize that good nutrition and good sleep and regular activity are important, but taking care of their emotional needs are not? Any thoughts for yourself about why the discrepancy in our culture? Well, I think because we have this idea that I should be able to pull up my socks and summon up my strength of will to just get on with things and feel okay. And I think we forget that, um, you know, our mind is not just about thinking positive and strength of will, that there are lots of other factors that affect how we are emotionally 
Um, and I think that we, we don't, a lot of my clients will talk about having grown up in a home where there isn't um, sort of an emotional language mm-hmm. that's shared. So they might not have words to talk about their emotional experience. It might not be safe to talk about what they're feeling. And I think certainly when I went to school, and that was quite a long time ago, um, we didn't really talk about emotional health or well-being. And I think that's changing. I think the young students that I'm working with definitely have a bit more of um, a sense that that's okay to talk about. Um, So I think we, you know, we have to figure that out as adults often. Um, so, you know, we, we get this impression because it's not talked about that, well, I should have been able to figure this out for myself. Um, so there's that self-judgment of, well, why can't I? What's wrong with me that I can't make myself feel better? Um, I think that plays into the thinking also that some of the mental illnesses aren't really illnesses. They're just, they're laziness or they're just, um, a weakness of character, and I, I know there's lots that's emerging in the field of neurobiology, and but what's your thinking about that? Do you consider things like anxiety disorders or depressive disorders illnesses? You know, I'm not sure that I consider it so much an illness. I, I might have years ago, but now I think it's, you know, we all experience sadness, grief, Um, some degree of depression, I think, at some point in our life, because difficult things happen. We all experience stress and anxiety to greater or lesser degrees. And I think it's when it gets in the way of really being able to appreciate the good things in our life that we need to do something about it. Um, So I've really, I try to move away from sort of the diagnostic terms um, in my own practice, because I think... You know, the severity of, of these things is what differs, but the the shared experience, um, I think, is universal for all of us. Yeah. In eating disorders, I, uh, which is the area that I work in most, I have to remind people of that, that, for example, one of the criteria for anorexia is being below 85% of your body weight, right, in order to have a diagnosis and to have the illness. And so then I say, well, what does that mean? If you if you gain five pounds over two weeks, does that mean you don't have the illness anymore? And then if you lose that five pounds in the next two weeks, do you have the illness again? And then if you go into hospital and you gain five pounds, do you not have the illness again, right? And this back and forth and that really Really, those are meant to be kind of loose guidelines that help us to have a shared language for talking about experiences that are way more common than I think our culture would lead us to believe sometimes. I have just a couple of other quick questions um, around some of this. Um, So one is, if somebody wanted to come and talk with you about any of this, or they wanted to um, try yoga, how would they do that? How do they reach you? How do they get started with yoga? Thoughts about that? Okay. So for yoga, I I teach at Living Yoga and Health, and it's a lovely studio that's on Wyndham Street right downtown. Um, So they could just check the website, and um, there are lots of classes through the week from beginners to um, intermediate, advanced, and uh, for all ages, you know, for kids and um, for for those of us over 50. Um, and in terms of my private practice, also um, my website is um, 
accessible <laughs> if you just Google my name, um, and also therapists in Guelph. Sure. Mm -hmm. And if there was anything that you um, wanted to say about reducing the stigma around mental health and um, or anything that might help people to feel just a little less embarrassed or a little less fearful of judgment, um, anything around that that you'd want to say? Well, I think what I have found is that even the people who are really fearful of talking about it, often once they start to talk about it, they realize that there are other people who've had a, a similar experience. And so it, it's often our own fear and our own sort of the stigma that we have about ourselves that stops us from realizing that there might be somebody in your own office or you know, if you're in school, just in the same row in your classroom who's also struggling. Um, so I think sometimes it's just taking a chance to um, be genuine about what you're experiencing and, and share it with somebody and you'll realize that you're not alone. Sure. I certainly have had clients who have um, once they've come to therapy, they've said, like, I really find this helpful. I think this is something I would like to continue to do. I'm not sure if I should tell my family or my friends or, or someone I'm dating, right? Um, what are your thoughts about that? How do you help someone sort out who's good to tell, who isn't, those kinds of things? It, it's interesting. I mean, it, it, it's usually sort of um, having a sense of what have they heard um, this person say about things like that in the past and and to maybe I don't know usually I, I suggest start with the person that you feel is the safest that is really you know your gut feeling is this person is going to be really understanding and that's a really good person to start to practice with sure I sometimes allow um, clients to kind of role play with me a little bit, some of what they might say, um, because as you said, sometimes it's language. If you say to someone, you know, I have major depression, um, that could elicit a different response than saying to someone, you know, I've been feeling really down and not like the just kind of like, oh, I'm having a blue day, but like really down. Do you help clients, too, to work that out and to um, practice or um, rehearse things they might say? Mm -hmm. I do. I think it's it's always helpful to to sort of do a little bit of that role-playing and, and, and practice the words. It just makes it so much easier. I also talk sometimes about, you know, doing some writing to just kind idea. of practice what, what you might want to say. And also that even if you've decided to share something with somebody in your life, that they don't have to know everything. Right. Um, and that's the other thing that I think helps people to feel a lot safer. Sometimes just to say, you know, I'm really struggling and I'm not comfortable telling you everything right now, but, you know, maybe eventually, but just to let you know that it's, this is a difficult time. There are a couple of themes that I've heard you talk about today, Elizabeth, that um, I guess I especially like because I agree with them. Um, and so one of them is moving away from that all or nothing thinking, um, that it doesn't have to be that you tell everything or you keep it secret. I love that piece. Um, what you were talking about in terms of not comparing so much, because even if you come out favorably today, it doesn't mean you will tomorrow or next week. And so I loved hearing you talk about how that piece doesn't really help you feel better in a stable way. Um, and most especially the self-compassion piece and the part about acceptance. Um, sometimes 
there really is true and genuine stigma out in the world, and um, people can hear quite nasty comments from people, but sometimes the nastiest comments are the ones in our own head, right? And they're the places where we hear the most judgment and um, just people beating themselves up as opposed to being compassionate. And I really admire the way that you have been able to bring together both talk therapy and um, a body therapy like yoga, like mindfulness, to really help someone move towards self-acceptance. And um, I can see how that would be so useful for people who are struggling with a variety of things. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. Thank you, Candy. That concludes my interview with Elizabeth Schramm, who is an individual and couples counselor uh, here in Guelph. She is a social worker in private practice, and she also teaches yoga. Uh, She is at the Living Yoga Studio uh, downtown in Guelph, and she also has a website that is just her name, spelled Elizabeth, E-L-I-S-A-B-E-T-H, Shram, S-C-H-R-A-M-M dot com. There's a link to her on my website at whatseatingyou.com if you'd like uh, more information about how to reach her. I would love to hear your comments and suggestions for future shows, and please feel free to send those to me at my email at openminds, with an S, at cfru.ca. That's O-P-E-N-M-I-N-D-S at cfru.ca. Please know, though, that I can't respond to any requests for specific medical advice related to um, your own mental health concerns. For that, I would strongly encourage you to put aside your fear of stigma and go talk to your doctor or a counselor, or if you're in crisis, go to your nearest emergency room or call your local crisis hotline. Thanks so much for listening, and please join me again next week.